Welcome to Conspecialist Corner. My name is Seth Bird. Uh, today we got a regional group of specialists joining us from the southeast, and we're going to discuss probably one of the more popular topics among not just cotton, but probably agriculture in general in the last several years, and that's the utilization of cover crops. And we want to take a regional perspective on this because obviously there's so much difference between cover crops and the way they're used across the belt. So again, today we're starting with the southeast. We've got a great group of specialists as always joining us, and we'll start with introductions. Tell you what, let's start there in Alabama. I'm Steve Brown, Extension Cotton Agronomist at Auburn University. Camp Han, Cotton Agronomist at the University of Georgia in Tifton. Keith Edmiston, Cotton Specialist at North Carolina State University. Hunter Frame, Field Crops Agronomist at Virginia Tech. All right, guys, thanks for joining us. And even though we've got it down to a regional basis, we're still covering a lot of ground with this group. I want to start with the cover crop itself. And I know that it's inevitable that we're going to say that term cover crop hundreds of times in this conversation. I'm already getting tired of it. We've only started. But from each of y'all's perspectives or locations, what goes into the factors of deciding what species to use, maybe options on different species, and then how you manage them, seeding rate, fertility, all kinds of stuff. So just start with kind of how each of you view the management of the cover crop itself before we even get to the cotton part. And we can start back in Virginia and work back down. For Virginia, I would say that the species selection is based on what your goals are for the cover crop. We have a lot of guys now looking at building carbon with nitrogen prices, looking at nitrogen fixation and a green manure crop. And in terms of you know management, fertility, that all depends on what cost share programs that they're targeting. Some of the cost share programs allow you to fertilize in Virginia. Some of them do not allow for fertilization of cover crops. They don't consider it a cover crop if you put fertilizer on it. So it's all about your goals and what you're looking to do in terms of how we recommend what species to plant. In North Carolina, most of the cover crops that we have right now are wheat. You know, there have been some people that have tried rye to get more cover to help control pigweed. But we've had a hard time in many cases getting a good enough stand to have enough biomass to actually help control weeds very well. The research out of Georgia says you need 8,000 pounds of dry matter. And we have a difficult time achieving that, especially late planting after cotton. I think a lot of people this year wish they'd have had some legumes in their cover crop. One of the problems we have with legumes is we're more likely to have cutworms and some other problems. It's a little more difficult to kill. And our work with legumes has shown that it's really erratic how much actual biomass and therefore nitrogen we get from one year to the other. And the grower, you know, has a hard time figuring out how much nitrogen he's going to get. So I would encourage people that are considering using legumes, particularly this fall with the price of nitrogen, to use that on your acreage you can plant early. We've tried planting 14 days before defoliation and done well with legumes in the field. When we do that in the greenhouse, sometimes, especially with the azure on, we have some problems getting a stand. I think probably in the field, we see less of that, probably because a lot of it's intercepted by the plant compared to in the greenhouse. 
Yeah, I'll echo a lot of the things that Keith was talking about. I think most guys around here are probably using uh, small grain type species, whether it be wheat, rye, or oats, anything like that. And me personally, I kind of prefer rye. We have, you know, the longer season, we can get a little bit more biomass than Keith can in North Carolina. But that gives us a good amount of biomass, helps with weed control. We see a lot of other benefits too. Helps out with thrips some, especially early. But, you know, I've seen some weird stuff with legumes, kind of like he said, you know, insect problems, stunted cotton a little bit. It's kind of weird, the stuff that I've seen around here, too. We worry about, you know, being that green bridge with cutworms and different things and then also nematodes, especially with your vetches and clovers, stuff like that. There are some guys around here that have been really successful with cover crop mixes, you know do what works for you, right? You know, if it's working on your place, go for it. Yeah, I definitely would prefer a straight rye compared to some of the others that are out there. But I would say most of our guys are utilizing some sort of small grain type species for sure. Yeah, my comments from Alabama wouldn't be a whole lot different than what Camp had to say. Most of our covers have a small grain base and rye, wheat, oats, or even some specialty oats. We'll see some sort of small grain. There's a lot of promotion of mixtures, and that would include legumes such as crimson clover, hairy vetch. We've also added tillage radish in places, and it's sort of an interesting thing that we see. It can winter till as you go to the north. Still, that's not a bad thing, but it does maybe give us some improved soil conditions as we approach planting. We're going to plant them when we can after post-harvest, and that's sometimes we're pushed most of the time, we're probably going to broadcast them after we get the cotton off. There may be some that would do what I think Keith described in terms of applications before leaf drop. That's not done widely. We do see that we can probably reduce our seeding rates if we drill versus broadcast. And some recent, I think, regional research with some of our cover crop specialists, if we can call them that, They've seen some numbers that rather than say 70, 80, or 90 pounds of rye or some other small grains, we can actually get by with lower rates, maybe even as low as 30 pounds. So that's an economic savings. And always people are thinking about what the cost is. Research would confirm that rye is probably the preeminent small grain, but sometimes accessibility or cost would push them in other directions. One route we would hate to go down. Well, whatever we do with a cover crop, we got to be able to eliminate it when it comes time to plant or approach planting. And ryegrass, some have been successful with it, but it's more and more difficult to kill. And so we sort of would say, hey, no ryegrass. But termination is going to be usually maybe three weeks out. The small grain with legume mix, maybe we negate some of the need for extra nitrogen. If we have a very aggressive small grain cover, our nitrogen rate, we think, might need to be bumped up a little bit as that dry matter degrades and consumes some nitrogen up front. If you put the legume with it, we think maybe that goes away, but we don't have a lot of dependence on our legume for carrying us you know, much in, in terms of nitrogen. Biomass could be a goal, but a farmer has to think about what he can do with his planter, with his operation, with row cleaners. The more, the better, most people would say. But if you can't plant in it, if you're not accustomed to managing such biomass, that creates a challenge. I've seen some folks, unfortunately, throw up their hands and burn the cover off. 
and that's an unpreferred approach. But anyway, that's the start of this discussion. Yeah, that's a good point, Steve. I think a lot of us probably just say rye, but we are talking about 99% of the time cereal rye. Obviously, Italian ryegrass is a whole different beast. And I have seen some confusion on that, including ryegrass sold like from a seed company as a cover mix. I find that terrifying personally, but it's a good point to make a good distinction that, you know, cereal rye that we're talking about generally is the cover. We're scared to death of ryegrass right now with periquat resistant ryegrass. Yeah, I've seen terminated cereal rye fields with green ryegrass sticking all up through them, you know, in April and in May. So it's to me pretty scary. A couple other points that Kent made, I think obviously there's some benefits of weed suppression if you get a dense cover. And the long-term research shows with small grain covers, we see less thrips injury. There's some interesting studies on that, but that's pretty consistent across crops. And that's a bonus for us as we move forward. And thrips become more and more resistant to some of our seed treatments and so forth. Yeah, that's a great point, Steve. That's certainly something that I want to definitely get into because that's something that we've seen too with covers and, you know, side by side, a row apart, thrips injury with no thrips injury where you got cover. You mentioned... I guess, optimizing seeding rates for covers, probably to get, I'm guessing, to get your input cost on your cover crop down. So when they're talking about the optimal seeding rate, is that to achieve a certain biomass level? Is that the goal there that you're trying to, you know, hit this biomass with as few seed per acre as possible? Some of this research has shown that there hadn't been a tremendous amount of difference in biomass production. You might get a little more with an 80 or 90 pound rate, but the numbers have not been greatly different in this regional study, you know, looking at 30 pounds, particularly rye and our other small grains. 30 pounds drilled. Yes. And if you don't drill, if you broadcast, we think maybe you got to go up, I don't know, 20% or something like that or higher rate, something along that line. So how does that seeding rate? Compared to you other folks, where y'all are as you move north, are y'all similar seeding rates for your covers? I would say that I would agree with that. And it depends on your goal with your cover crop. Some of our people, the main goal of their cover crop is to prevent sandblasting. They're on level land and erosion is not a major concern for them, but sandblasting is. So it really depends a lot on your goals. And as far as thrips, we have seen the same thing, even with relay planting, with that wheat staying alive in the field, reductions in thrips. It just amazes me. Yeah, I mean, as far as seeding rates, I don't know about y'all, but NRCS and DCR and soil water conservation districts, they like a minimum of like two, two and a half bushels of small grains. I mean, that's for their program. You're not supposed to get the payment if you cut that. But most of our work has been around that 75 pounds. So that's a bushel and a half of rye, cereal rye. We don't get as much biomass. I mean, we're not getting nowhere close to 8,000 pounds of biomass on our rye. In these studies, we're getting probably two to three. We get pretty good ground cover. Once it lays over, we probably get better if we rolled it. But we plant it standing in our cotton system. Yeah, it depends on the goal. If you want weed suppression, you're going to have to get that cereal rye or any small grain, really. I mean, we've gotten just as much biomass with barley as we have with cereal rye. It just depends on what you want to do in terms of your goals. I mean, as far as like the legumes, we're drilling most of ours. So we're shooting for about 25 pounds of total seeding rate. So usually we do a mix of hairy vetch and crimson clover 
And probably the past six or seven years, we've been highly successful with that, where we're generating on average probably four to 6,000 pounds of dry biomass with our legumes. And we're getting anywhere from 160 to 200 pounds of nitrogen in the above ground biomass. But we're doing it a little bit different. We're not trying to come in behind cotton all the time. We're going in behind corn and some of our extended peanut rotations. So where we have corn and maybe two years of cotton and then soybeans or peanuts in these four or five year rotations, we're coming in with those legumes. So we're getting them in in September, October. Last year, we did plant in December or late November on a farmer's field behind cotton in the fall of 2020. And his cotton last year behind cereal rye with 120 pounds of nitrogen, he produced 1,300 pounds behind our legume mix planted in late November up here with 60 pounds of nitrogen. He produced 1,500 pounds of cotton. The legumes, if you plant them early and you manage them for high nitrogen, We've had good results, not just on research station, but we scaled this up where we got strip trials and planting them with air drills, which are not what air drills are intended to plant, but we make it work because that's what they're going to use on large acres. Hunter mentioned fertility. That's one of the things I was curious about for you other three. Do y'all see much input, you know, outside of, you know, planting the cover crop and terminate it? Do you see much management in the in-between part of the season, fertility applications or anything else? We do not. But if you want to get high biomass rye, putting a little nitrogen on it in the springtime is probably the best way to get more biomass, get more tillering out there with the lower seeding rates. But we typically don't see fertilization of our cover crops. I would say that's probably true for North Carolina, what Hunter just said too, for most growers. In season, like with the cotton, if we do a small grain cover crop, our recommendation is to increase our nitrogen 25%, just because it's going to tie up a little bit more. I would say I'm like Keith and Hunter, if you want to add more biomass to the cover crop, fertilizing is a good idea. But, you know, just personally, it's kind of a struggle to get one planted anyways. You know, a lot of folks aren't going to spend the money to fertilize it unless they really or trying to achieve that one goal of putting that biomass out there. In the lower parts of Alabama, we have options with cover crops, including grazing it, cutting it for grain. If we're going to do that, obviously we'd fertilize. But if we want to just increase biomass, we might, again, I think as Camp said, probably in February, give it some nitrogen, maybe 20 or 30 units to help it grow some and to give us more production. On the whole, it would be low inputs in terms of fertility overall. Sounds fairly similar to most cover management programs I've heard. Just hope to get what you can get and not put too much money into it. So we've gotten the cover part out of the way, assuming that we get a good stand, good biomass, and now we're ready to plant cotton versus, you know, conventional till or no cover system. What are some of the challenges that y'all see with planting into a cover? Maybe not challenges, maybe just things you need to tweak or address when you've got a cover out there. And it could be, you know, strip till, your cotton seeding rate, and Hunter brought up rolling versus not rolling cover. And that's one thing that I'm curious about because I've done it both ways, but never in the same field. You know, when you get to the time of the year where it's time to plant cotton, what do you got to take into consideration? I think the main thing for us is to kill a cover crop at least two weeks before you plant. One of the biggest reasons is so the cover crop doesn't soak up the moisture you may need to get your cotton up. I wouldn't disagree with that. I would say we're two to three weeks. I would probably prefer three 
And covers are an interesting thing because in a dry year, they can take up a lot of moisture. And in the season, we think of them as providing moisture conservation. But our limiting factor on planting is often usually not temperature, it's moisture. And so if we have a cover crop that stays out there a long time, it can take up the moisture and we can be very dry underneath that cover. Conversely, if we're in a wet spring, we've got a cover that can retain moisture for a considerable time and make it more challenging to run our strip till units or even our planters. So it's sort of an interesting game coming from both sides, either taking too much moisture or retaining moisture at the soil level. But so termination three weeks out is a good idea. And as we plant, we feel like we need to clean the row rather well. As we get residue in that planting furrow, we can see some issues with cutworms. We've even seen slugs get on the cotton too if we've got too much stuff there. Now, the long-term thought is we don't want to plant in a depression. And sometimes our row cleaners, our planting units and our subsoil units can give us a little bit of depression. That really becomes an issue if we are pushing the edge in terms of our residual herbicides because they can, in fact, move down in that furrow and concentrate the rate and get us some injury. But on the whole, our pre-emergence rates today are nothing like they were 25 years ago. So we're not pushing that envelope as much. Yeah, I'd agree with a lot of what Dr. Brown said, you know, going back to, you know, moisture kind of being the limiting issue. But if you've got a really wet spring or something that's retaining a lot of that moisture, it could even decrease the soil temperature a little bit. I mean, it's going to stay a little bit cooler for longer, you know, so we might need to keep that in mind, too, whenever it's coming time to plant. If it's time to plant a conventional tilled soil then, you know, maybe wait a little bit longer on some of that cover crop ground so that the soil temperature is a little bit warmer if we get into a situation like that. If one of our growers decides to use a cover, we're nine times out of 10 strip tilling it. I don't know very many people around here that are no-till. You know, at this point in the game, we've been doing the cover crop thing for a while. And so I feel like most folks have got their equipment fairly dialed in in terms of what they need to do. They might bump their seeding rate up just a little bit to get an acceptable stand. But overall, I wouldn't say it's a ton. It's not a huge increase. You know, we're not going from two seed per foot to three, you know, kind of thing. We're probably somewhere in the middle there. And then Also thinking in terms of, you know, what Dr. Brown said about depressions and blowout and things like that. Those are the kind of things that I'm thinking about when running a strip till unit through the field. With a high biomass cover, you know, you don't want to end up creating a huge depression in that plant strip just to help with seed soil contact for sure. I'm curious as how much is rolled across our region in terms of our cover crops being rolled. I'm not sure in Alabama how much we do, but just comments on that. I'm kind of curious what amount stays in the field long enough that you have to roll it. You get what I'm saying? I drive by a field, you know, sometimes on 75 up around Dooley County, and it's been burned down. And I mean, the rye was, you know, not six inches tall, you know. And I mean, part of that is probably going to be planted in corn or peanuts. They're probably getting ready for that. But If it's that small, you don't have to do anything, you know, just go in, strip till and plant right into it. So, you know, I'm not real sure what amount would even be big enough to get rolled at that point. We see very little rolled in North Carolina. If I see some, it's probably some kind of test plot. The depression thing is interesting, too. The first time I saw that really happen was in lower Alabama when I was there. 
when Strip Till was just sort of coming on and what some of the growers did. And I encourage our growers to do on soils that are prone to that is to run that Strip Till a couple of weeks before planting and let it settle. It gives you a moisture advantage planting deeper into moisture, but it can create some issues as well. The rolling question was one I actually had. I wanted to ask because I was curious. I think sort of like what Keith said, a lot of us do it in research. Everywhere I've been and you ride around, nobody's rolling a cover. It certainly makes it look pretty. All laid down flat and you strip into it and it looks nice, but I don't know how realistic it is. And I'm not sure how much more benefit it gives us throughout the season. Probably is a great benefit when we have an extreme amount of biomass and pushing it down and enabling it to maybe even clean it better versus it all falling across the road. I think the high biomass producer might be the one more likely to consider rolling. If you're letting a rye get less than a foot, there's no point in rolling it. But our guys are letting rye get six, seven foot, depending on the variety. We work with a farmer who's got a 12-row Kinsey. They built rollers to go in front of their row units, to go on their planter, and they're planting thousands of acres. It helps out tremendously when you're laying rye over and you're no-tilling, even strip-tilling, and you got your roller set up the width of the planter because it's easier to move that out with the row cleaners. And a lot of our guys take the row cleaners off and just run straight either double-disc coulters or a single no-till coulter. And so they're not even tilling a strip. And, you know, I've seen the kind of trench type method folks not having their row cleaner set properly and they're too aggressive trying to get down to the soil. It's easy to plant through big cover when you're planting soybeans and corn because you can stick it down an inch, inch and a half and it's going to come up. And you don't have to worry about seeding depth. That's been my biggest thing with ours, especially planters that are set up to run a conventional till or on strip till where they have the double depth gauge wheels. So you have the double depth gauge wheels and it wants to ride on top of that high biomass. So you really have to check your seeding depth to make sure you're getting to where you need to be with cotton. If not, you're going to be putting it on top of the ground. That's the biggest concern that I have for our guys. I mean, if I'm planting in the legumes, clovers, or vetches, we're spraying and killing that and letting it get crispy before we go in. If you're strip tilling into that and it's any shade of green, you're going to be wrapping, you're going to be pulling up a lot of material at the end of the row and you're going to be getting off your strip till rig cussing cleaning it out so we let it get crispy on the legumes before we go in and in the rye if it's a rye only i'd say you could probably plant it green in virginia depending on the variety that you're growing and when it's hidden but you can get into some issues like last year we had a very dry may and we got into trouble at one on farm location by trying to go in green but that's been my experience planting, but I mean, we've gotten great stands keeping the same seeding rates using some 40-year-old equipment up here. So it's all about paying attention to your setup when you go into the field. Yeah, forgive my ignorance. I haven't seen high biomass of anything in a long time. The green thing, though, that was another thing, and I probably wouldn't even have known about this if I hadn't have seen it on the internet. Good old interwebs full of knowledge. And I saw people planting green and it blew my mind. So you can guess my standpoint on it, but that's again, regional. So I guess two questions, and Camp, you mentioned this, the green planting first. I guess my two questions would be, one, do you see that as an option for producers in y'all's area? And two, what does that look like? 
when you say you're green planting, are you rolling down green biomass and terminating it the day you're planting cotton? Are you literally planting into a crop that you're going to wait on to mature? So whoever wants to take that little hot potato first, go for it. Our guys, I would say more years than not, we have the moisture to plant green. But is that probably one out of five, maybe two out of 10 years where it's going to hurt you on the moisture? Most guys are not going to harvest the standing crop, so it's probably going to be rolled or it's probably going to be planted directly into it and then sprayed with that first Roundup spray in cotton to terminate. And it depends on the cover crop variety. And Tennessee has put out the past few years a big variety test of different cover crops. And I mean, I encourage anybody to go to that resource and take a look. We've started kind of imitating that. But if you have like one of the rye varieties that's called a bruisey, is a very early maturing rye variety. And then we have some Canadian rye that are very, very late that aren't adapted. So if I wanted to get the maximum amount of ground cover and biomass with that Canadian rye, but wanted to plant my cotton on time, that would be a variety that I would probably plant green. Whereas a bruise is hidden in the middle of April. So I'll probably just go ahead and terminate that because you don't want that pulling up and setting seed. So it depends on what variety and what your end goals are in terms of whether you're going to plant green or not for us. I would say in North Carolina, our soils tend to be a little more droughty than Virginia. That's one of the reasons why usually their state average yield is higher than ours. So we're a little more concerned about leaving things green and using that moisture we're probably going to need at some point during the planting period because it's probably more than one out of five years or at least part of the planting period people are starting to plant too deep because of lack of moisture. And then we get into stand problems from planting too deep. I think we approach it a little differently. There's not very much planted in the green. And for everybody, it's all about the law of averages. And the law of averages for us is that it's pretty common that you're going to use up your moisture if you leave that crop out there too green. Yeah, I'd echo what Keith said. You know, in a lot of our fields, If we're too wet, we're probably less than seven days away from being too dry. So planting green to me, it could be an option, but it's a risk and it's not one that Camp Hand is willing to take. So I wouldn't recommend it. I kind of like the two to three weeks before planting, burn it down, make sure it's dried down really good and then plant into it. But yeah, the planting green thing, I see the pros to it, but I see the more glaring cons to it and potential issues as well. Yeah, for the lower southeast, I don't like planting green because not only is the moisture issue, but you got a very almost a competitive weed there. I've seen a lot of non-successes, I'll call that planting green. I've seen it in corn as well as cotton. Non-successes. I love that term. I see that a lot on my performance reviews. Now I know where it comes from. (laughs) I like that. And we have a lot of data that shows that early competition, like Steve mentioned, in cotton can pretty dramatically reduce yields. So, assuming we've got the green planting thing figured out, in general, in your more common scenarios, I think you've all mentioned the impacts these covers can have on soil moisture in dry or wet years and temperature. Do you see a need to tweak your cotton seeding rate when planting into covers or maybe tweak it based on how much biomass you're planting into? I think a farmer can make that adjustment on the go. There's some folks that can deal with a lot of residue and get a fine stand no matter what. I think you just got to get out and look and see how well you're covering that seed, putting it at the depth you want it, and going on. 
I remember way before Seth was born, I did a study in North Alabama, first no-till study I was ever involved in. The rye was like six feet tall. We didn't have any kind of row cleaner. We planted into it. We had seed in straw. We had seed on top of the ground. It was terrible because we really didn't know what we were doing. But we got an inch, inch and a half of rain, and that overcame all stupidities. And so I think a farmer can make the adjustment on the go and see how well he's doing. And if he's got rugged conditions, maybe he's got to bump it up, but maybe he tweaks it up a little bit more. But if he knows what he's doing, he can proceed with a pretty standard seeding rate. I like how you work my name into overcoming stupidity conversation. I mean, it's almost like Steve knows me for a long time (laughs) and overcoming these challenges for a long time. I agree. There's no substitute for a grower going out there in any conditions and seeing how his depth is and how well a job is doing and if there's adjustments he needs to make to the planter or to his planting rate. Same story, different day over here, Seth. I mean, I concur. I've already said it. The seed and depth to me when you're planting in the cover is the biggest important factor for cotton because we know we can't sink it down an inch and a half like we can in other crops. And so you got planters out there now that these 1,700 John Deers and some of these other planters, they can plant in the concrete, man. They got the downforce and they have this technology. They can get it in the ground. You just have to make sure it's where you need it. All right. Well, we've covered cover crop management and we've covered all the way up to planting cotton. And we'll continue this discussion in our next episode and talk more about the in-season side of the management with covers and maybe some of the other hurdles to adoption and other things that covers can provide. I'd like to thank the group here. See you guys on the next episode, though. I'd like to thank Cotton Incorporated for the sponsorship. You can find us on Focus on Cotton. I'd like to thank Keith Edmiston for the music. And thank you for listening.